picture this. It's after work. Work is wrapped up and your coworker asks you about your plans for the weekend. You mentioned that you're going to church and then the conversation turns to spiritual matters. You mentioned that you read the Bible and your coworker says, yeah, the Bible's a great book, but at the end of the day, it's a book written by men. How do you respond at this point? Do you freeze up? Do you try to laugh it off or dismiss it? Or do you have an answer ready at hand? Is the Bible merely a human invention? That is what we're talking about today. This is Worldview Legacy, the podcast from the Think Institute that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedekes, and my mission is to help you to build a legacy where you and your kids and your wife will be able to better articulate what and why you believe and see Jesus change lives as you share your faith and answer the world's questions and pass on the faith to the younger generation. So, is the Bible merely a human invention? This is an objection that I've been wanting to become better able to answer for myself ever since high school, when my English teacher made this very point. She said, the Bible was just written by men. And you know what? You hear this all the time, not just in public school, but out in the public square. And being able to answer it is going to help you to become all the more ready to share and defend your faith and to lead your family in sharing and defending your faith as well. So joining us today to help answer this question is Mike DiVirgilio. Mike is the author of the new book, Uninvented. And Mike speaks in a very relatable way. You're going to enjoy what he has to say about scripture. It's really going to inspire you to have more confidence to have these conversations. And specifically, you're going to learn about a couple of different things. You're going to learn what question-begging anti-supernaturalism is and why it's a problem. You're going to learn about verisimilitude and why the Bible seems to have it. You're going to learn about why when it comes to scripture, it has to be verbal plenary inspiration or nothing. And we'll talk about what that term means. And you're going to learn about why we must not let non-Christians get away with believing in a partial Jesus. Now, if you find this question thought-provoking and you want to feel more confident answering it and other questions like it, and you want all the other stuff that you need to know to better articulate and defend your faith, then I want to tell you about our free community. It is the group where you can join together with about 930 others who are on the same journey that you're on towards building a legacy for their families. You're going to get solid answers to questions from the Bible, healthy conversation to help sharpen your positions, and stuff to help you grasp the tools of theology and philosophy in practical terms so that you can pass on the faith to the younger generation. This is a fellowship of people connected together to share ideas and skills and practical help. And now there is a new way to get connected as well and to get tons of bonus content and resources to help you on your journey. It's brand spanking new. And I'm going to tell you all about the group and this new platform and how to join them both at the end of the show. So now, without any further ado, let's get into it with Mike DiVirgilio. Hi, I'm Mike DiVirgilio, author of the new book, Uninvented, writer, husband, father, Christian, and excited to be here. I've had you on the show before, back before we rebranded, when this was called the Think Podcast, you and I had a great discussion about your book, The Persuasive Christian Parent, and that was very helpful. And so I've been excited to have you back. Tell us about your new book. It's called Uninvented. I finished it a while ago. I was very edified by it. Thank you. What is the story of how you decided to write this book, especially so soon after your previous book, The Persuasive Christian Parent? In studying for the first book, The Persuasive Christian Parent, I came across this uninvented argument over and over. It's very common in apologetics literature, but average lay Christians don't know anything about it. And I really, I didn't either until I started diving deep into apologetics. So, so I said afterwards, I said, I'm going to write, I love writing and books are hard and fun to write. So I said, I'm going to write another one about this. So uninvented why the Bible could not be made up in the evidence that proves it. 
and the evidence is in the text itself. And we'll obviously talk about all that, but it's so powerful to me. My target audience is lay Christians who aren't, quote, into apologetics. And I want them to know this is not just myths and fairy tales, as the critics insist it is. Why should a Christian who's not into apologetics pick up your book, which is an apologetics book? Because if they care if what they're reading is the truth and not mm. a lie and not a myth and a fairy tale, that's a decent motivation. It's everything. I, you know. So one of the reasons I've decided in when I became a Christian in 1978, and that was well before apologetics or anything, is like, if this is true and this is real and God is real, I'm in. If it's not, I'm going to go party. So I decided it was. Then I found Francis Schaeffer and realized, wow, it's more than me and just the Bible. There's all this philosophical and reasonable and evidential and all this stuff that, so I can really, and it applies to all of life. Mm. So that has always been my theme. So when I, I tell, tell our kids, the only reason we believe Christianity is the truth is the only reason we believe in Christianity is because it's the truth, not because it's good for you and makes you happy. Because obviously, often it makes you miserable. <laughs> That's so true. In fact, yeah. a lot. Yeah. I call it the pain of sanctification. Mm. So, and I would never want to be young again, I tell them, because I don't want to go through all the pain of having to learn what I've had to learn over these last decades. Amen. Because it's hard. So, it's true. So, that to me, do, do you really care if what you believe is the truth? I think you did a great job explaining who your audience is. But okay. I noticed that in the book, there's different viewpoints that you seem to be coming after. Atheism, pantheism, enlightenment thinking, liberal Christianity. Is there one central antagonist, Mike, that you're looking to combat? Or is this just shoot a bunch of arrows out, see who it hits? That's an important question because it's not a, it's, the arrow is not the case because the bogeyman and this isn't meaning everything, all the horrible things in modern society or postmodern society are due to the enlightenment. But it started, and it, Richard Weaver, and I'm pretty sure I quote him in the book, talks about nominalism in Occam. And that sort of was the beginning of it. And Schaefer goes back and makes Aquinas that guy. And I, I do see why. And, uh, and then you have, um, I talk about Bacon and empiricism and Descartes and rationalism. And they, These are different thought leaders throughout thought leaders, from the Enlightenment down to now with their different schools of thought. Good host. My tendency is to think people know what I think. and So anyway, that's great. So all of these Enlightenment thinkers inevitably led to a secularism, yeah. which you know, I talk about the Bible and its critics in higher criticism, biblical criticism in the first chapter. Once you get rid of God as the starting point which is ontology, which is the study of being, to epistemology and how we know. So I quote Descartes, who was in the mid-1600s, he was fighting skepticism. He was a pious Catholic, and he was trying to save Christianity, just like a lot of other philosophers later than him were. And he started by doubting everything he could doubt. He says, okay, I'm going to doubt it all. And the only thing he realized he couldn't doubt was himself and his own thinking. So he started with, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum. But... That was sort of the linchpin turning point in, in intellectual history in the West, because now God became sort of an afterthought, somebody we're going to find with our own unaided reason, autonomy, mm -hmm. neutrality, right? Because they assume yep. that. That's right. I call it in the book, question begging anti-supernaturalism. Mm. So that is the assumption. So we're talking, you know, the presuppositions, these things that people accept beforehand without proof, without evidence. Mm -hmm. And um, question begging, what we tend to, well, we started, we've used language morphs and changes, but when someone says begging the question now, we think raise the question. Right. But historically, a, a logical fallacy, meaning assume the premise. Yeah, we know the Bible must be false because it has all these miracles in it. And we know miracles aren't real because the worldview of the Bible is false. So you're assuming what you're trying to prove you're assuming that in the premises of your argument which is which breaks the it, that's not a valid it's not a logically valid move you can't do that it's not logical and they do it all the time and we need to identify it so when you look and you get to a certain point you know there's spinoza in the late 1600s he was a jewish intellectual philosopher 
and he was the first one to say that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were not written by Moses. Mm. And his Jewish community in Spain um, kicked him out, excommunicated him. And then you have another guy named Ramirez, and you have these succeeding generations of critical scholars who, that's it. Their, their reigning assumption is anti-supernaturalism. It can't happen. So, of course, it's a bias. And I had a little debate online on a show with a, an atheist, and he was offended. He uses that he used that word. He said, I'm offended that you said I'm biased. It's like, what do you want to call it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm biased. Yeah. I, I, I'll totally embrace it. God exists. Right. That's my bias. On the table, baby. And I argue in the book, if God is posited as everyone seems to think God as a definition is, what's wrong? Why are miracles difficult? Why, in the second chapter, I talk about the idea of revelation. <clears throat> of course, God can reveal himself in creation, scripture, and Christ if, he's, if there's a God. Let me assume that. Does it make sense? Inspiration, and so on. So that question begging. So that's, that's the bogeyman. That's the guy I'm after. Question begging anti-supernatural bias. And we live in a secular culture, secular plausibility structures. In other words, that's what seems real. You use the word that I use in the book a lot, verisimilitude, which is the word which means whatever seems real to us. And to our average neighbors, secularism, this, this world, natural mundane world, that's real. Anything outside of it is not real. It reminds me of something that I teach my high school students. I teach apologetics at a local homeschool, high school co-op. And when we talk about evidence, one of the things that I teach them to ask, Mike, I want to know what you think about this, Sure. is let's say they're talking with a skeptic or someone, atheist, or just someone who doesn't believe the Bible. And this person says, I just need to see some hard evidence for the truth of the Bible. What I tell my students is one of the first questions you need to ask is, first of all, what do you mean by evidence? Let's get that out there. But then second of all, do you believe in God? Which seems like such a crazy question to ask because that it almost seems like, well, isn't that what you're trying to prove? But if the person has an existing belief in God, there's no problem opening up the Bible and saying, yeah, God raised someone from the dead. God, the son, turned water into wine. If you don't believe in God, that's a different conversation because of course you're not going to think God can raise the dead. God's ruled out from the beginning. Right. Is that an example of addressing question begging anti-supernaturalism? That's perfect because that's exactly it. And you have to, if it, so if you're having a conversation with somebody and you even say, okay, you're an agnostic because that's most, there are very few truly philosophical atheists. Right, yeah. But most people are agnostics or they're practical atheists, <clears throat> meaning God's not really a real part of their lives. But do you, could you believe in God, a personal God like it talks about in the Bible? I'm not telling you that you do or whatever, but can you just posit that? So now do me a favor, go and read the gospel of John, for an example, <clears throat> just posit God's possibility. And then let's come back and let's talk because then you're not going, ah, you know, you see whatever Jesus did, raise Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> come on. Right. There must be some other explanation for it. It right? has to. Because we know there's no we God know. and therefore- do you really know? This. Yeah. Right. Well, let's talk about the idea in your book of verisimilitude. Hmm. What is verisimilitude and why does the Bible seem to have it? Man, it has it in spades. Um, it's the, just simply, it's the appearance of being real. And it's utilized in the context of, <clears throat> you know, in movies or literature, when someone's writing a story you're watching it. And the question is, do you buy into that? Does it appear to you that that could actually be real? So if it's done well, you'll get lost in the story. You won't even be thinking there's someone in front of a camera holding this. There's two people there, memorize their script, script, and they're going back and forth. You just do. And that's special. But if you, if it's done not well, you're just like, there's the phrase, called to suspend disbelief. And if, a, if an author or a director pushes that too much, you're just not gonna believe it. You'll get up and leave or shut it off. So that is hum that's ginormous if 
if a text is to be believed or a movie or whatever. <clears throat> and the Bible from the beginning to the end has it everywhere. As long as you don't have an anti-supernatural question, making anti-supernatural bias, then you can allow the story. So when I first was going to write the book, <laughs> you could tell I'm not a marketing person. I was going to call it psychological apologetics. Mm. Now, nobody would have known what in the world that meant. Um, because most Christians don't really know what apologetics is. And like, what does psychology have to do with apologetics? Right. But in the studying that I had done prior for my other book, and as more and more reading of this, it was the psychology of the characters that just seemed so, they don't read like people made up. Mm. And there was no such thing as fiction. Yeah. Talk about that for a second. You brought that up on the Unbelievable podcast about how in Jesus's day, when the apostles would have been writing, Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as modern fiction. Can right. you unpack that for us? Well, it's interesting because Matthew, who's a, is a good guy, he's an ex-Christian or whatever, and this is the guy he just kept saying, "Oh, the, the guy I was interacting with, yeah, on unbelievable." And um, and he is a full-on atheist. He's not an agnostic. Okay. And he kept saying, "Well, it, yeah, it's fiction. It could be. It could, I mean, it was just assertion after assertion that, mm. yeah, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the, so on and so forth." you know, all of the ancient Greek and Roman literature and whatever, that's, you know, it's fiction. Any scholar who, who studies this stuff will say, and there's different dates. Some might go to the Middle Ages, 15, I forget the, the names of who, but a lot of people say it begins with Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. So, and there was certainly, certainly no such thing as historical fiction. We're going to make this peer real, and we're going to want you to believe those are real people, even though you and I know they're not. So when Homer was writing the Iliad and the Odyssey, he wasn't writing a novel. He wasn't writing the Lord of the Rings of his time. No, he didn't. Everybody seems to agree that stuff happened. There was a war, yeah, Trojan War, and and a lot of that stuff. But you know, were the gods involved? And did Achilles do his thing? And Hector, probably not. Yeah. As Christians, we would say, of course not. But. Yeah that was their pagan view of worldview. There was where their presuppositions. Mm -hmm. So and that's what he was laying out. That's what Homer was laying out. Yeah. With the which is a, that people would read it and believe it. Right. And then the odysseys of, of the founding of Rome and their whole creation story mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's powerful. I mean, obviously it's lasted this many years, but nobody goes to that and says, Hmm, Achilles didn't fly up in the air. And I'm not familiar enough with the stories because I wasn't classically educated. Not mm -hmm. that I'm, bitter about it um <laughs> <laughs> as you wear your hillsdale college t-shirt or shirt yes baby well, it's the best it's the best good classical, um, good classical college there yes so um <clears throat> you know so they weren't writing whoever wrote it didn't write it as eyewitness testimony to actual historical events and so one so of the, the sorry i i i just want to make this point very, very clear. What you're saying is that there wasn't even a genre available to the authors of the New Testament called fiction. So this right. idea that they're just writing fiction, you're saying that's ruled out from the beginning just because of the historic, historical facts on the table. Is that is that clear? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there's um, there's scholars, New Testament scholars, who've <clears throat> compared the, the the gospels to um, other ancient biographies, you know, and, and the similarities and the differences and so often I'm not a scholar, so I couldn't speak to all that, <clears throat> but it fits with that kind of, um, history, not at all as fiction because it simply was not something they could conceive. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't sit down and say, how could we just give this a little punch? Huh? You know, Jesus resurrection. Okay. So an example in, in, in the, the book I use is that there's no depiction of the resurrection. And, um, in the oh, book, yeah. I don't have, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, Turek and, uh, and, um, his co-writer, I'll remember it. But they said there was a uh, gospel of Peter where they do describe it and it's just flashing lights and it's all this amazing stuff. Well, if they made it up, you would, they, how do we get people to believe this? Hmm. Assuming, and we need to really talk about the Jewish nature of Jesus' world and how they, there's just no way they can make that up. 
<clears throat> but if you want someone to believe it, you're going to make it a little flashy, you know, and how are we going to make this believable as opposed to why was there no depiction of the resurrection? They didn't see it. Okay. Okay. So that, that's interesting then. So there was no modern fiction, but there were certainly people who wrote untrue things or mm. embellished things. Right. So the, the question then is when we're looking at the gospels and the book of Acts, the new Testament, are we talking about something that was embellished, something that was flashy, something that feels fake, phony, untrue, or does it have this quality of verisimilitude? We've ruled out fiction. The question then is, as we read the New Testament, does this ring true? Does this have the marks of an authentic document or one of those Gospel <clears throat> of Peter embellished documents? Is that the right. is that the conundrum? Is that the 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 dichotomy or or the um, antithesis that we're trying to unpack here? Yes. Okay. Yes, because <clears throat> so I have this thing, and I, I got this from Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, mm. about if 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 something isn't true, something else has to be. And I use it, I call it my little phrase for it is the consideration of the alternative. And this is I wrote so in this interaction I had with an atheist, I call him the rationalist. I said that to him, and he goes, No, no, that's not true. It's like, what well, if this isn't true, something else has to be, right? So if the Bible is not true, something else has to be, and the something else would be, it's invented, made up stories. And I argue in, not in depth, because it's a short book, but um, I argue in the book that, you know, a couple things. When I'm talking about biblical inspiration, either it has to be every word is inspired by God. He's the author. And I explain how both he and the humans and all their personalities and knowledge and all in their eyewitness testimony, <clears throat> all of that, they are the author too. But God is the author. Why did you, 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 well, yeah, you, you say that in the book, you say it's either verbal plenary inspiration, which is That's a term where I was going. to define, or nothing. What do you mean by verbal plenary inspiration? Why does that it have mean, to be that or nothing? It literally has to be. And, and, and what makes the argument, that specific argument you just said, <clears throat> so powerful is that in the history of biblical criticism, so most of the early biblical critics in the 18th and 19th century were Christians, or they thought of themselves as Christians, Kant and Hegel and others. And they were even, in fact, trying to save Christianity. But they accepted the Enlightenment assumptions, the question begging anti-supernatural bias. So I talk in the book about Frederick Schleiermacher, who grew up, a, 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 I think it was a, a brethren, pietistic Christian. <laughs> His dad was not, you know, he doubted a lot. And in that milieu, the plausibility structure of the Enlightenment was rationalism was like, <clears throat> miracles just aren't plausible. So he got rid of those, but he wanted to keep his Christianity. So he would say, you know, and you look through, like Thomas Jefferson is the quintessential liberal Christian. Mm. And he's not a deist really technically, but anyway, he, he he took a pen or knife and he excised out all the miracles. Right. That made sense to him because God really doesn't get involved in this world naturally, in the natural world with miracles and so on. And, and basically Jesus is a um, great moral teacher, which is not an option because elsewhere in the book, which piggybacks on verbal plenary inspiration, is everyone wants a piece of Jesus. That's a phrase I use. Because you look in every religion, every philosophy, oh yeah, Jesus is just a great guy. you know. And then they'll take 30% of what he said and none of what he did in terms of the miraculous. Mm. And then they, they think that's authoritative. It's like, what I say is that that is arbitrary. So why should I believe something arbitrary based on the authority of some person I don't even know who declares to me this bit's true and that's not. So it's either, so we're not talking about whether, this is another Doug Wilson phrase, not whether, but which. It's not whether we will have an authority, it's which authority will we accept, the authority of scripture or the authority of these men who are judging arbitrarily. That's really good. That's the truth. And that's <clears throat> when you look at all the history of it, so I, you know, I do a, a brief overview in the first chapter. It's awesome because they became committed to that anti-supernatural bias, and that became that informed everything they did. It still does. Who's this? You look at biblical critics. Oh, 
New Testament yeah. scholars, Old Testament, all these people. Mm -hmm. And they just spew out whatever they do. And there's some good stuff they say. You know, you don't want to throw out everything because we've learned a lot. Sure. But, you know, obviously the Exodus wasn't a historical event. If it was, there might have been like the Iliad and the Odyssey. And Really? Hmm. So why would I believe you, Mr. Mm -hmm. Scholar? Well, because I'm an expert. And over the last few years, we know how how reliable experts are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's the uh, New Testament scholarship version of trust the science. Yes. Uh -huh. And that it, it is. Yeah. Because what they were going to do, and I talk about this, is that so science was the thing. And it was pretty powerful when you think about it. You know, the stuff people were discovering is like, wow. <clears throat> and when it was unmoored from its Christian presuppositions, science became this this, uh, yeah, I use the word presupposition. Oh, yeah. Uh, for those listening later on the, the podcast, uh, my eyebrows just went up. Shocked face. We're getting, we're getting closer and closer to Mike finally admitting. I'm telling you, I'm not far. <laughs> I am not far. Because, again, when I'm actually talking to people, I, I go there 99% of the time. For sure. So, um, so <clears throat> when you unmoor uh, science from the presupposition of Christianity, humility before God, the assumption that this is his creation, and I think there's plenty of evidence for that, and so on and so forth, <clears throat> the hubris is just going to happen. And in the ancient Greek culture or stories, hubris, they always use that as a story to introduce a nemesis. Because mm. they're going to, everybody who has hubris is going to overreach, right. always, 100% of the time. So the, the critical scholars did that and have done that. So you look at, I'm talking way too much here, but the uh, liberal Christianity took over all the mainline denominations in the 19th century. And um, the seminary I went to was founded by J. Gresham Machen in 29. And he f he was a Princeton scholar, New Testament scholar. And Princeton was the, the reformed conservative seminary in America. Yeah, And great, like Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield and Machen and others and so he fought, you know, the good fight to try to keep the denomination conservative, and he lost. And so he founded Westminster, and there's a, a whole story behind that. But you, it looked at the time like the liberals had won. You know, question-begging, anti-supernatural bias is the thing. The Bible is, yeah, it's great and all. Some of it's authoritative, some of it's not. But, you know... Uh, we'll just be good people and we'll have a social gospel and we'll change the world and all that. And uh, by the 60s, it started to just, you know, it, it, it enervated. It took all of the power out of Christianity because it's not true. If it isn't true 100%, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I would tell anybody that. If it ain't true, just go party. Go do whatever you want. You're not going to yeah. be here very long anyway. So it has to be all or nothing. Amen. In, in your book, you lay out what I think is a very, very good case for why we go with the the verbal plenary inspiration, which verbal mm -hmm. meaning the words of scripture, plenary meaning all of scripture, inspiration meaning breathed out by God, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's, it's mm -hmm. from God. So, and you lay out these four hermeneutical principles, Mike. Hermeneutical meaning having to do with how we interpret scripture. Right. And if unless I'm mistaken, those four principles are authorial intent, audience understanding, Scripture interprets Scripture, and then Scripture is all about Christ. How did you come to those four interpretive principles, and tell it, unpack those for us? The answer is I'm a genius. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's funny is you just you know we, we we're all as they say you know midgets standing standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And, um, the first time I heard authorial intent, so I'd been a Christian for six years in 1984. I was introduced to Reformed theology, which was upside down from my basically Arminian understanding. And, um, and Steve, who became my mentor, said, you know, you always have to consider the what the author meant by what he wrote. Like, huh, never thought of that. Because I always thought it was me in the Bible and God would zap my head when he wanted me to understand something. Mm -hmm. Not that he might not do that, but whenever you take the text outside of its context, somebody says you have pretext. It's just, you can make it really mean anything. So there are meanings objectively in the text. We, of course, we're going to disagree. But as I say in the book, 
our disagreements as Christians are minimal compared to the disagreements. Just study the history of philosophy and religion. Look at the disagreements. It's conjecture based upon conjecture, based upon speculation, based upon speculation. I'm going to a source that says it is the authority. What is the, I can't, I don't have it memorized in the, the uh, Westminster Confession about for faith in life. It is mm. the thing. It is yes. our authority for and all of it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and again, the consideration of the alternative, that is such an important apologetics principle because if this isn't true, something else has to be just regarding anything. So, so with those four principles as the interpretive framework for how we're looking at scripture, let's, mm. let's build this case of verisimilitude and talk about, how about this? Why don't we start with the criterion of embarrassment, which is something mm. that you talk about a lot in this book. What is the criterion of embarrassment? Why is it unusual or shall we say unexpected and why does it matter that it's in scripture how does that add to its verisimilitude the idea is simply that you don't make up a story that makes you look bad mm. i mean you could but knowing human nature are we inclined to make ourselves look horrible right well, social not. media would would say no well <laughs> that I mean, was a different story um, we put our we put our best <clears throat> foot forward for sure we try to make our lives look good. And and that's understandable because it doesn't feel good to look horrible and look bad and have people know who the real you is. And, uh, and it's interesting when you read the Bible, I mean, from the get-go, nobody, I mean, there's one or two people, Mary, um, <laughs> not many others who come off looking good, who don't have serious warts and induce things that are, you're just going, what, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? Because it's, it's real. So Noah, nobody's as righteous as Noah, right? And, and they, oh man, God just saved you and look what you just did. And, and you can go on and on with, uh, I talk about Abraham and Sarah, you know, here's the promise 20 years later, nothing. And I think about old people trying to conceive. <laughs> And that you, you got to realize this is real stories about real people. Right. Yes. And imagine you're 20 years in. We have a niece who I've been praying for God to open her womb. And this oh, makes me almost emotional. And she, um, they got pregnant recently. And this was several years, years. They were married in 17, July. And just wanted, wanted other, you know, nieces of hers have had children. And, uh, and that was only like five years, six years. Imagine 20 and you're 90. Yeah. And God said, nope, keep believing. And then, of course, Abraham doesn't. He has, you know, Hagar has a, has a kid who he thinks is going to be the seed, you know, and it's like, mm -mm. and then that just created catastrophe after catastrophe throughout history and Israel's history and our history. So, uh, but nobody, David, you know, here's a man after, I, I wrote a post about this recently. Here's a man after God's own heart. And not only did, you know, Christians are fond of pointing out that he committed adultery, not fond, but <clears throat> he committed adultery and had, had the husband killed. Mm -hmm. So like, how could that be a man after God's own heart? Mm. And then what's even worse to me is that he counted his fighting men and everybody warned him, don't do that. Because mm -hmm. God had warned that, I think, in Deuteronomy, don't, your, your trust is in confidence is in me. And he did it and I forget what's like 70,000 people died. A lot of people died. And then he mm -hmm. repented and it's like, but you son of a gun, you knew you weren't supposed to do that. Right. Man after God's own heart. The reason he was is because he knew <clears throat> that it was mercy and grace. That's why he was a man. Not because he, we're, we want to be like David. God forbid we should be like David right. in that sense. So yeah. And everybody, and you look in the new Testament and you look Elijah and he has this great triumph that the, the prophets of Baal, which I talk about in the book, is just one of the great stories mm -hmm. in history, in literature. <clears throat> and then afterwards, he goes off and wants to die because Jezebel wants to kill him. And, you know, it's just beautiful. It's, it's just pathos. It's so good. And that's why it just has verisimilitude. And I just challenge anyone with an open mind to read it and tell me this is all made up fictional fairy tales and stories and myth and doesn't really like it at all. Well, you get a great, great synopsis of all those flaws and failures 
in Hebrews chapter 11. Mm. You've got mm. from, from Abel to Enoch to, True. you know, Abel, Abel comes off really good, but there's a certain level of embarrassment, even in the fact, I, I'm not speaking evil of the dead, maybe it's been too soon, I don't know, it was one of the first stories in human history, but Abel is overcome, is overpowered by his brother and killed. Um, you, but then you trace the rest of those, you trace those heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. And the only thing that makes them heroic, according to Hebrews, is that they had faith. Exactly. Samson's in there, Jephthah's in there. Uh, and you read, go back in the Old Testament and read those stories and take Jephthah as an example. What did he promise? What did he do? I know it's debated. I'm not going to get into that now because I want people to go look up that story. But good grief, those people were not heroes by and large because of their deeds, but rather because of the faith that In they had. In spite of them. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> and you're saying that that's the criterion of embarrassment. People wouldn't make up stories that made them look bad. If you're going to invent a chosen people, you would not invent Israel. <laughs> Is that fair? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and, and when you read Israel, because, but see, that's why you go to the fourth criterion of, of hermeneutics, a biblical interpretation that's Christ. Because mm. the reason Israel comes off looking so bad over, and I'm reading through Isaiah now, over and over and over, rebellious, idolatrous, they are, um, you know, unfaithful in the extreme and so on. So not because they're any worse than you or me, but to point out that the answer isn't our works, isn't the law, you know, as Paul goes through that in detail. Romans and so on, that our hope is in Christ alone, through faith alone, in God's word alone, right? Grace and mercy. And that's um, so counterintuitive because we are, and Keller says this a lot, that we are, oh, there's a Latin phrase for it, I can't remember, but we're religious people, meaning we want to work our way. We want to earn. And that way we could put God in our debt. Look what I just did recently, God. Right. You know? Yeah. Now don't you love me? And he's like, no, (laughs) in Christ I do. Amen. Because Christ is my righteousness, my justification, and my redemption. Let's talk about Christ because you talk about Jesus a lot in this book. Hmm. And you talk about how he's too popular to make up. You talk about the Jewish- He's a rock star. Yeah. You talk about the Jewish nature of the world. You talk about how you can't let people get away with partial Jesus. Hmm. We could spend an entire episode- just focused on what you say about Jesus. But let's get into this idea of Jesus, the rock star. He's too popular to make up. What do you mean by that? And how does that impact the verisimilitude of scripture? So, you know, it's interesting because when you look at the history prior to John the Baptist coming on the scene, and you look at it, the history from the fall, well, the, the first cap, the first, um, what, I forget what they call it, but when the Assyrians came and took over the 10 Northern kingdoms and just wiped them out, they're lost to history. Then you got the Southern two kingdoms, the Babylonian captivity in the 500s, and then they come back in the 400s and that in, what we call intertestamental period. So the period between Malachi four something, 30, whatever, and John the Baptist and that intertestamental period. And it, it almost seems as if God is preparing all of history for Jesus to come on the scene and for Christianity to be not only established, but to spread quickly. And um, uh, I think uh, Paul Mayer has a book about that, where uh, Paul the Apostle says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, etc. I think that's Galatians 1. But, um, you know, and when you look at um, uh, Alexander the Great in his not only conquering all the known world, but Hellenizing it. So, Greek became the lingua franca, which means the language of the day for most normal people and the, they, how they interact. So all of a sudden, well, 300 years or whatever it was, <clears throat> that they could write a gospel and people, well, that's one part of it. They could understand it, and not in their native language, but in Greek, because mo- everyone basically spoke Greek. And then um, you have Roman roads. So you have Roman power in the hundreds of years that it lets us, and they have... All over, all there's, I think there's like 50,000 miles of Roman roads. So they could conquer and keep peace and so on and so forth. So those two things alone meant that the gospel could be established and the writings and the message of Jesus could go everywhere quickly by, by ancient standards. Because they of the say language and because really, of the roads. 
Huh? Because of the language and because of the roads. Right. That's two of the reasons, right? So so they could write something and it could be spread very quickly over mm-hmm. an amazing amount of land and people. Because remember, mm-hmm. in, the, um, in the promise to uh, Abraham, it's stars in the sky and sand in the seashore. His, his descendants would be as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. As See, there he goes again. As, yes. Total. Perfect host. Total. Right. <laughs> so that was the promise of the sea. Right? It was going to be uncountable. So so it had to get there. How does it get there? If everyone speaks a different language and nobody right. takes weeks to get anywhere. So there's that. And then and, and you're just thinking, is that a coincidence? Maybe. Good. Right? You can explain anything away. And the third one is that when the Jews were the diaspora, when they were dispersed all throughout the Roman Empire, they couldn't bring the temple with them. So they, their religious practice could no longer be centered around the uh, the temple and the sacrifice and Day of Atonement and all that. So that's when they established synagogues and teaching and so on and so forth. But you, you don't sacrifice there. You're not going to do that. So what they did was uh, during the three or four feasts of the year, all of the Jews literally from all over the empire, Africa and all of Europe and wherever else, they would come and they would just descend on Jerusalem. And, you know, there's different estimates of the numbers, but it could be million the people from 30,000 population to a million or more. Some mm-hmm. say more. <clears throat> That's a lot. And what did those people do after they spent that week there or whatever? They went home. And then they would share with their experiences and so on. So the argument I make in the book comes from Jesus and the eyewitnesses, which is Richard Bauckham, scholar, British scholar, brilliant. <clears throat> and he argues about something called recollective uh, memory. So whenever something catastrophic or important or, uh, you know, amazing happens, you, you tend to remember it I mean, pretty. De- I mean, the details are like stuck in your brain. Mm-hmm. So I use the example of for older folks, like even older than me, World, uh, Pearl Harbor, where they were, um, where they were when um, Kennedy was assassinated. I was too young for that. But 9-11, my, my son wasn't even born, but I mean, I feel every moment of that oh, day yeah. in those days. And me that too. Week, you know, and, when, when uh, John, I'm a big Beatles fan, that's why I use, I use the Beatles in the book as an example of rock stars. When he was shot, I mean, man, I just, where I was sitting, I heard it on the radio. I know everything about that. Jesus was so unique. I call him a conundrum. You know, a conundrum means somebody who's totally confusing. And in the Jewish context, it wasn't just his personality that was unique and confusing. So I use this mini series I watched when I was in high school, first time I've watched it probably 50 times since then with my family, called Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. It's nothing like The Chosen. So the Jesus in that movie, in that series, is so bizarre to, to everyone. And nobody, everybody has this quizzical look on this face when they encounter him. Like, so, you know, if that was made up, that's, and four guys made it up. It means just genius mm. how they write him as somebody that's inscrutable, an utter conundrum. So that's just his personality. His teaching was anti to everything the Messiah was expected. So how do you make up a Messiah that no Jew could have conceived? And I mean, and, and, and I'm no scholar, but everybody's, I have a Jewish named Giza Vermees. Anyway, he's Jewish historian. And he says, nobody ever conceived in, in, in intertestamental Judaism of the idea of a virgin birth, for instance, or a resurrection or a Messiah dying on a cross. Right. But he's a Jew, so obviously he had to believe they made it up. So the crazy thing, though, is that although no one expected it at that time, the Apostle Paul could go into the synagogues and could prove from the Old Testament scriptures, hey, this is exactly what God promised. And so even in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He wasn't talking mm-hmm. about the gospels at that point. He's talking about Genesis through Malachi. So right. it was in there. This is one of the most incredible things is that even though it was not what the Jewish people had expected, it was what they should have been expecting. And you can go back and now with the eyes of faith, you can look, you can read Isaiah. You right. can read. Oh, I read it this so morning. On. Just like I talked to my, my son's getting married by a, a rabbi who's a messianic Jew, a Christian. Oh, yeah, like my father. And we talked. Yeah, I was there this weekend in Miami, with, and we met him and talking about Isaiah 53 and that the Jews just, 
modern Jews just don't read it, can't talk about it, ignore it. Just too obvious, you know. Yeah. How do you? What is? What's that doing there? So, yeah. it's very um, extremely compelling. Let's put it that way. I wanted to ask you about this, Mike. You say we shouldn't let skeptics get away with a partial Jesus. Can you explain that for us? Absolutely. I mean, you think about it. If you're reading something and and Jesus says, love your enemy, and to a modern secular people who've been influenced by Christianity, every value that a modern secular liberal holds, it's basically a, taken away from Christianity. So why should we love people or care for the poor or feed the sick or whatever, right? Why should we do that? That's great. So they'll read that in the Bible and say, amen, brother, Jesus, we love you. But the same Jesus that said, take up your cross daily and follow me, that I'm the resurrection and life, my flesh is real food and you need to eat it and my blood is real drink, you should drink it. Eh. Or the Jesus that walked on water or rose Lazarus from the dead or yeah. who healed the... Eh. I don't think <laughs> I'd buy that part. But I really do love the the lovey-dovey Jesus who's intolerant and accepts everybody, you know, like the woman and caught in adultery or whatever. Yeah. So... Okay, that's if that's your life in your bag. If you want to have a partial Jesus and delude yourself or whatever, I don't care what you think. Why do they do that? Okay, well, <laughs> Genesis three fifteen, because of the fall, they want to be like God, autonomous, and that's just because they want to be like God, knowing good. I mean, it's just you know, those are deep spiritual issues. And either we're going to bow down to the creator of the world, the king of the universe, our creator and our savior, or we're not. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, we call the shots. We determine what's good and evil. And since I'm a Calvinist, reformed, it's John 6. I mean, I've been trying to, I've been going to memorize the verses, but the only person that can come to Jesus is the one the father gives and the son draws and saves and he'll raise him up at the last day. So you have to be spiritually raised from the dead. So I have a whole list of, I call it my heathen list of non-Christians I pray for every week because I desperately want them to come to know what I know, what we know. Because life, and I've taught my kids this, secular life is shallow, meaningless, vapid. It's, it's an unfulfilling. You know, why? We live in the most prosperous, incredible society in the history of the world by far, and yet 40,000 plus people in America alone killed themselves. Man, that secularism is really working for them. Hmm. People are miserable. They're taking drugs or taking antidepressants. So that's why my kids would never not be Christians, because you look at the alternative, it's like, ah, right. really? That's one so, of the most powerful apologetics I think we have today, Mike, is, hey, do you, do you wish that there was someone with some sanity and a solid foundation where you can tell up from down, left from right, light from darkness, you should come and become a Christian because yeah. that's what I mean, we have. Not because we're so smart, but because that's what Jesus brings. That's what Jesus I offers. kept bringing that point up that, you know, this isn't me saying this stuff. I mm -hmm. didn't say I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That right. was Jesus who said that. And it's in the Bible. And your argument isn't with me. Yeah. But people, easy to bag on Gen Z and all that, younger folks, but they're empty. They want something substantive. Yes. We, we have it. Yeah, that's right. That's, <laughs> man, that's spades. so good. So where else could we go? Because the partial Jesus is just not an option. So and if people want to do that, then it's just really, you know, that's up to them. But how do you feel making a claim like that in today's world? It's all verbal plenary inspiration of scripture or nothing. It's all Jesus or nothing. How do, how, how do you, Mike, feel making that kind of claim in today's world? I mean, I believe it's the truth and I believe it can be defended. So here's, a, I think, a decent response. They do the same thing with their sources of authority. Hmm. So whatever the verbal plenary inspiration is, is it CNBC or CNN or what the NIH says or the CDC, right? Or my teacher at school. Like you said earlier, everyone has authority. So you're buying all into that and that's your worldview and that's your presuppositions and that's what you accept as the driving force of your existence. And how is it working? Are you really fulfilled? Nobody's, unless they have Jesus, it, nothing's going to do it. But the ones who are open, you send out the hook or put the pebble in their shoe, as Greg Kokel says, mm -hmm. 
And it'll have an effect because the arguments of uninvented of the scripture are so powerful. And so it's just insane. Every morning I read it, I just go like, wow, <laughs> wow. Like I say, I, I thank God every morning for revelation, God's revelation in creation, mm -hmm. in scripture, in Christ, in the creation. It's just incredible. But the Bible, it's written over 1500 years, 40 plus or so different authors, two languages primarily, a little Aramaic thrown in. And then you just read how it's just from Genesis three to beeline. And it makes so much sense. And then when Jesus rebukes the disciples on the road to Emmaus and says, you, you know, you idiot, he calls them fools. How did you miss this? It's all about me. Right. You know, and, and he shows them one... in all the scriptures. And yeah. The more you read it, it's an endless bottomless dive because it's God. Yeah. It's Christ. But yet you know how true that is. Every day you, you know, it's all. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's just thrilling. You mentioned on the Unbelievable podcast that for 300 years, Christians have felt like they are on the defense. They have the burden of proof. It's up to us to defend it. And I know one of your goals for writing this book was to flip the script, turn the tables, mm -hmm. if you will, and place mm -hmm. the shoe on the other foot to use as many metaphors as I can here and to switch the burden of proof and to show that the burden of proof is on the skeptic of the unbeliever. Do you believe that you have successfully done that? Well, I hope I've done something <clears throat> to move the conversation. I want the idea of uninvented to become a thing, you know, a meme. Uh, and what you said is so critical because Christians have been put, as what does C.S. Lewis calls it, God in the dock. Mm -hmm. We're the ones on the defense stand and we're the ones that are being grilled. Mm -hmm. Prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it. What's your evidence? Prove it, prove it, prove it. As if they don't have anything to prove, as if they don't need evidence. And I just argued in this few series of blog posts about evidence and, you know, that in a court of law, there's no such thing as, well, Descartes brought us the curse of the thinking absolute certainty was even possible for finite human beings. And that is the pretension of the Enlightenment. We're going to figure it all out, whether it's COVID or whether it's economics or whether it's whatever. Yeah. No, you're not. So for people in you know, 12 jurors, not everybody's going to be as convinced as the next person, right? This evidence is a little more persuasive to me, a little more plausible to me. This seems a little more uninvented. You know, why did Jesus have women? Why did the women discover the empty tomb? When they had z almost zero credibility in a court of law at the time. Criterion it's of embarrassment again. Embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If you want Jewish men to believe you, you don't put that in the story. Right. Unless it actually happened and you're just exactly. reporting the facts. Yes. Hey, and one thing that got Matthew, that atheist in the Unbelievable Podcast, one thing that got him on his heels a little bit was when um, I talked about in, in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, mm -hmm. they talk about. I think it's 84 facts that Luke has in Acts that are historically, archaeologically proved. And you think of, and he goes, where's that? And so we talked about it a little bit. If he's going to be a stickler for details like that, and everyone knows Luke is a careful historian. So he's just going to make up the piece about Paul healing the, his nephew that falls out of the, the window because Paul's talking way too long and he passes out and he just, oh, he raises him from the dead. Or Peter, when the guy, the, the, the paralytic or whatever, he, they heal him and he starts jumping around. <laughs> He's just going to make that up? You have well, to Paul explain why you think that. It, it yes. flies in the face of the evidence. And one of the things that I really like about your book, Mike, as I'm reading it, is you seem very unapologetic in the way that you're just taking someone's attention, focusing it on scripture and saying, look at this. Do you really think this is made up? Really? And it's, I felt like the entire book is just you pointing at scripture and going, really? <laughs> you really think this is made up? I do use a lot of rhetorical questions. Do you, does it, does it read like it to you? I, yeah. I done to me, but what do you think? Because when you look at Jesus walking on water, stilling the storm, you know, the person who's writing that, Mark, Matthew, whatever, Luke. They didn't believe it either. And they act all 
like this can't happen. This is impossible. Mm -hmm. Plus, there's no precedent in all of Old Testament history for anybody walking on water, right? Or any man stilling a storm. Who is? What do they say? Their response is, "Who but God alone can still storms like that? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey? There you go. Who is this? No one expected a miracle-working Messiah. Nobody." He was going to be Davidic. He was going to be a conquering king and right. all that stuff. But by golly, at the same time, it's ironic because Alfred Edersheim, who I quote a lot in the book, is a Jewish Christian from the last century. Mm. He said those miracles were needed for them to believe the absurdity that Jesus was talking about, wow, his teaching. And it is because, yeah. oh my gosh, he just, not only did he say he could forgive sin, which was blasphemy, and he should die. But the guy got up and walked mm -hmm. at his mere word. So that's why the, the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him were hesitant because everybody believed, gosh, look what he's doing. He's yeah. healing me. That's so, so good. So cool. Mike, I know people who are listening right now, they want to get more of this. They want to see the full argument. At least they should. I'll tell you what, it's it, it really was a blessing to me. Where can mm, people find you. your new thank book, Uninvented, and how can they follow your work? So uh, thank you. I published it through Amazon KDP, but it's just, it's an Amazon. So the paperback or Kindle, I'm working on an audiobook, which is taking a lot of time, but that's fun because I know a lot of people, it's just easier to listen to audiobooks mm -hmm. nowadays. Yeah. So that's in the works. I'm actually putting up chapters as I finish them. So I'm where are you putting on those on my website? So my website's my name, Mike D Virgilio com. So it's D V I R G I L I O.com. So I have a section called audiobook. And if I have my email in there, and if anybody wants to ever ask me something, because this is what I love to do. Like you, talk about Jesus. Amen. C.S. Well, Lewis. I'll finish it with this. And so this is on the front of my first book, but uh, Lewis was an ex-atheist. And he said, I believe in Christianity as the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And that is what everyone needs today. They need Jesus because he makes sense of their suffering, the goodness, the beauty, truth, everything. It's just praising. It's too good. Amen. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the Worldview Legacy Podcast. So good to have you back, man. Go check out Mike's brother. book. Thank you so much, man. Thanks thank for coming. You, brother. Out. All right, brother. Uh, Talk appreciate to you it. So now you know. Question-begging anti-supernaturalism is the arbitrary bias against supernatural accounts that many in today's world have, and it's a problem because it keeps people from believing the Bible. And it's not actually based on good reasoning. It's arbitrary. It is a blind faith commitment. We also talked about verisimilitude, which is the sense that something seems true or realistic, and the Bible has this in spades because of several reasons, including the criteria of embarrassment, and the conundrum that is Jesus Christ. If someone were going to invent a chosen people and a Messiah, they wouldn't have done it the way the Bible's authors wrote about Israel and Jesus. You also heard Mike DiVergilio explain why it has to be verbal plenary inspiration or nothing. If the Bible is breathed out by God, then all of it must be breathed out by God, or you end up relying on a human authority to judge your Bible for you. So it's either scripture is God's word and God is the ultimate authority, or you have to trust man's word as your highest authority. Mega cringe. You've also heard why we must not let non-Christians get away with believing in a partial Jesus. It's hypocritical and it's arbitrary to simply pick and choose which parts of the Bible and Jesus' teaching that you want to accept. And again, this makes man the authority. Mega cringe. Check out Mike DiVergilio's new book and his blog by going to MikeDiVergilio.com. There is a link in the show notes. And now I want to tell you about how you can become better able to answer the world's questions about Christianity and better able to lead your family in the Christian worldview and make a positive impact for the gospel in your workplace, in your church, and in your local area. You need to know about the Think Squad. The Think Squad, broadly speaking, is what we call our community here at the Think Institute. There are many different ways that you can be in the Think Squad. You can be a listener of the Worldview Legacy podcast, or you can be a regular viewer of our YouTube channel. 
You can be a member of our free online community, The Think Squad on Facebook. I talk about this every episode. Just go to facebook.com, search for Think Squad, T-H-I-N-K-S-Q-U-A-D. How else can you be in The Think Squad? You can use catechids to teach your kids the basics of the Christian faith. Or you can be one of the thousands who engage with our resources every month. But listen, Think Squad, it is time to take your involvement with the Think Institute to the next level and to really become the worldview leader that your family and your church and your local area need you to be. It's time to join Think Squad Plus. Think Squad Plus is the premium podcast subscription that helps you to build a legacy in the Christian worldview and helps equip other Christian men who aren't pastors but are serious about answering the world's questions and passing on the faith to the younger generation. Subscribers to Think Squad Plus will get early and uncut episodes of Worldview Legacy, exclusive access to an Ask Me Anything submission site where you can ask questions 24-7. You'll get personalized shout-outs and mentions on the Worldview Legacy podcast and in the Think Squad Facebook group. You'll get monthly apologetics and worldview coaching AMA calls, possibly more frequently. You'll get positive, possible appearances on a Worldview Legacy AMA episode. And you'll, you'll get the wonderful feeling of knowing that you are helping to equip Christian men to become the worldview leaders that their families and churches need. You can get all that, not for $50 a month, not for $25 a month, not even for $10 a month, but just $9 a month. And you can learn all about this or subscribe at worldviewlegacy.supercast.com. That's worldviewlegacy.supercast.com. The link is in the show notes. And hey, shout out to Shane Rogers. Shane is the newest subscriber to Think Squad Plus. Shane, man, I'm so glad you're on board and I will see you at the next AMA call. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedekase, and it has been a production of the Think Institute, not for profit. We are a Christian educational and outreach nonprofit ministry that equips believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And we are based by God's grace. <laughs>